That should, I think that's mine. That one, that's better right there. That should be perfect. Good. Yep. Check, check. All right, we're recording. Okay, we're rolling episode uh, twenty-one, the Red Hawk recap, and we're we're pumping. Um, this episode is sponsored by Patreon.com/slash Red Hawk Academy. We've been putting stuff up there for years now. So if you you become a, a subscriber, there's a couple different tiers. If you're not making good money, there's $3 tier, $5 tier, $10 tier. But there's so much content on there. Technique content, um, cooking content. Just just this week, I put up a spinning body kick tutorial with Kyler Phillips. Uh, we put an easy lift tutorial for when you're... A lot of people ask me, hey, how, much, how many times should I lift a week or what should I lift? And well, we put a tutorial vid up yesterday. Breedor review, Nogi X guard sweep, high percentage sweep in, in Nogi. Um, I gave away a $300 bong, did a giveaway last week, but we're putting shit up there all the time. And like I said, if you subscribe, you get access to all the content for the past, past couple years that have, uh, aren't anywhere else, but Patreon. So, uh, we're here with my friend and, um, yeah, my friend Chris Martin, he's got a pretty freaking crazy story. Mariah and I watched uh, your documentary. Uh, we watched it yesterday. It's called uh, I don't know when you search it. I think it's called hashtag Haters yep. Make Me Famous. Yeah. Hashtag Haters Make Me Famous. <laughs> oh, oh, Jay, yeah. could you turn it down a little bit? I just didn't have this all oh, the way plugged okay. in. Like, <laughs> no, it was literally all the way up. I was like, God now damn. he's deaf. <laughs> okay. A little uh, down a little bit, and then that's that's about perfect right there. Boom, cool. perfect. Yeah, fucking crazy documentary. Such a badass life. I recommend you guys watch it. It's free right now on this, uh, I think, Tube TV. I'll have JX put the, uh, the link of the documentary in the bio. But, dude, fucking crazy-ass story. You were, you were passed around to 42 different foster care houses. By the time you were what age? Eighteen. Before eighteen. Forty-two though. Yep. With those with those foster care places, like what goes on in those houses and why do why do people host it? Do bad people host it because they get monthly money and they can fucking sexually molest the kids? <laughs> you know, a lot of it, like in my case, I went into foster care when I was nine years old. So at nine years old, there's not a lot of foster homes out there looking for a nine year old. They want babies they want newborns they want kids that are you know not somebody else's headache and that's what you know older kids are considered in foster care you typically don't even get a foster home when you are in the system right away um it took me until i was almost 16 before i got my first foster home i was in boys homes group homes okay um, so foster care is more when people almost want to adopt you yep. and then the boys homes and stuff they're like the last, you know, boys' homes are kind of a mix. It's where children in need of care go, and it's where kids go when there's nowhere else to go. Uh, there's no foster homes. There's no placements where the kid can be, you know, even close to home. So they'll ship him across the state into a foster home. Uh, girls, too, not not just boys. 
So what's the atmosphere in those places like? You know, there's, that's scary. Um, honestly, as a nine-year-old walking into a foster home, it's probably a lot like an adult walking into prison. Yeah. Uh, you're not around your family. You don't have anyone there standing up for you. And there's a lot of bad people in there. Um, a lot of the boys' homes I, were, I was in, it's not just children in need of care there. there we have guys that, you know, robbed somebody, uh, stabbed their teacher. I mean, there, there's all kinds of crazy kids. And the problem with today is we have 2,000 more kids in the system just in our state and 50% less placements. So that's where we have a huge problem and disconnect. I feel like uh, there needs to be more work done on that level. That's why we got involved. Yeah, it's it's insane to me. So do people just, even for the boys' homes that are before foster care, do people just sign up and say, okay— I'm going to make my home this to where these kids can come, and then they get paid monthly by the government? No, usually boys' homes are sanctioned by the state. They're ran by the the state, and they're like um, an emergency shelter. It could be a big house that has nine bedrooms in it that's all been converted and split for males and females, or it could be like a commercial building that's almost like a prison that has wings on it where the males live on one wing and the females live on another wing. Um, they're really a business. It's it's more of a business than anything. Um, I've seen kids come in and out for the dumb things, you know. Maybe maybe they were truant from school. Next thing you know, they've done four stents in a, a emergency shelter. I mean, to me, it's 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 more about money and bed space than it is anything. On the foster care level, complete opposite. Um, I was in very few foster homes where it was about fostering the kids. Uh, the parents had boats and cars and nice houses, and we did all the chores. We didn't get to leave our they, rooms. they get paid. They get paid. They get a monthly fee to take care of us and supposedly be our parents, but we're supposed to get clothing allowances. We're supposed to get all these neat things to take care of us, but they go to the parents, and if the parents aren't cool, we're not going to get them. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, especially in those those boys' homes and stuff, you probably have kids that their parents had done fucking crazy drugs while they were born, so they're just fucked up. Yep. So you go in there... And it's just, yeah, and and then the foster care. There, there's probably a lot of people just working the system over and fostering these kids just yeah. so they can they don't have to work and they can ball out on their money. Well, and it's not even it, it is that that's a big part of it. We even see now that you know I have friends and family that are cannabis users that have medical cards that are patients that have run nonprofits and businesses, and because of that medical card or because of that cannabis use, they're not allowed to. Do- to adopt kids. You know, we've got a lot of wonky laws on the books that are preventing certain groups of people from getting help or giving help. And that needs to change, you know? So if they, if you are a marijuana user, you're not allowed to foster a child. Not at all. Wow. But if I have a script from a doctor that says I can take 90 Oxycontin a day, I'm all good. Yeah. And you can just booze up all you want. <laughs> that's how it goes. Man, that's, that's politics. That's fucking crazy. Well, we could talk about that, that the foster care in those boys' homes, probably the whole podcast. <laughs> Because it's crazy shit. It's crazy shit. Right. But uh, your, your story is really cool. So you got out of you got out of that. You were in the, the system pretty yeah. much, right? Yeah, absolutely. The system until you were 18 years old. Correct. Once you're 18 years old, you go to college. College baseball. You're a good athlete. You're able to pitch in college. Yep. But all you know, kind of know is hustling, so you start <laughs> uh, selling some weed, yes, a little sir. bit of weed here and there. Yes, sir. And then uh, they bust you in the dorm for a joint. But little did they know there was 11 pounds in the closet. Yeah. So when I got to college, I had no family. I had no mom and dad. I came on a full-ride scholarship to pitch for Yavapai out of Kansas. Never heard of Yavapai. Didn't even know what it was. 
came out here, was here three months, and you got to eat. You got to pay for shoes. You need things yeah. to survive. And all I really knew was hustling. So I met a guy that was in my English class that smelled like weed, and I'm the nosy guy that bumped him and said, hey, you got more? We went outside, we smoked, we chatted, and, you know, half the baseball team smokes, half the soccer team, and I just happened to be the middle guy that knew the guy that could get it. Mm -hmm. So history, you know, it, it took off from there. I, I started slinging on the campus just to kind of take care of me, and then it turned into taking care of the, the sports teams. Uh, I had a roommate who was a drinker, got loud, campus police showed up, found a joint in my top drawer, uh, took me to jail, and like you said, there were 11 pounds in the drywall. So I look at it as kind of a... A karma, you know, I did get in trouble for what I was doing, but it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> they catch those 11 pounds. I'm probably not here sitting talking to you today. At 18 uh, even. At 18. And coming from a group home and foster home background, you know, the judges look at you like you're just a kid that can't get it right. You're going to continue to make mistakes. So they want to make an example out of you. And that's what he did. I got three years in prison just to show everyone else. If you come to my town and sell weed, we're going to bust you. Yeah. And that's what happened. Damn. So fucking three years. Three years. Three years and you're 18 years old. You just got done being in the system your whole fucking life. Right when things are going good, you're starting to pitch. Yep. You get your shit together. It's like, oh, my God. What do I keep doing wrong? <laughs> well, it's like, holy, well, your um, you're programming growing up, it's just like, fuck, yeah. I, I can't even imagine. But then, um, so you have, you have your three years in, and then you get out. How long were you out? Uh, let's see, I did uh, almost 20 years without any issues in between. Uh, just living my life, being a, a husband, a business owner, a dad. And how, how did how did how, without... What made you bring out like the kind of entrepreneur and be like, hey, I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to learn to yeah. make chocolate. OG Zonka bars is your is your company now where yeah. it's uh, edible chocolate bars. But without any, I don't know, any background, yeah. you're just like, fuck it. I'm going to start up this business. When I lived in the group homes, I had a Casa worker who was in the documentary. His name's David Alvarado. Yeah. Um, he's a volunteer. He was a guy that would read the files of kids kind of like me that were moved around all the time for no reason. And he goes to court and speaks for you to the judge when you can't. Um, that guy would take me out of the group homes during the weekends and have me run the gauntlet at my football coach's house just to keep my head right. And then would take me to his parents' Mexican restaurant and we'd cook. Um, I developed a love for food really young because that's what he did. Um, ironically, I took a liking to it. And when I got to college, like I said, I was a starving college kid. So I'm either hustling weed or flipping eggs at Village Inn just so I could make ends meet. You know, those are kind of the only two things I knew how to do. Yeah. When Zonka came about, I was diagnosed with Crohn's in 2007. What is Crohn's exactly? Crohn's is an infection in your lower ileum, your lower intestine. And everything irritates it, everything, whether it be red meat, lettuce, beer, sugar, dairy. I mean, everything irritates it. Um, I tried to avoid all that. I got on cam cannabis. Cannabis has saved me several times. And that's where Zonka was really born. When we went medically legal in 2010, there were no dispensaries here. Nothing opened for three years, almost uh, 2013. My wife and I both became caregivers, which allowed us to grow 12 plants each for each patient that we had under us. Once we harvested, I had about 25 pounds on my first harvest. We knew that that was a lot of weed, and we should probably figure out what we needed to do with it through the state. Called the state. The state tells us to destroy it. After six months and that much money, there's no way in the world I was going to destroy it. 
But I didn't want to sit in my house slinging it out the door when I've already had all this history and being in trouble. Running the risk, fucking going in again. Once medical came out, it said we could make you know, edibles out of it. We said, let's do it. I was at every compassion club, every collective helping veterans, helping kids, helping cancer patients, anywhere I could get it. Uh, went on like that for about two years. We were probably the first chocolate and edible brand on the market, if not the biggest. And I got raided for it. Uh, they kicked in my doors. They charged me with 15 felonies, not only for the chocolate, but I was also a motorcycle club president, which allowed them to rico me. So that attempt too. Yeah, so that and that was in Prescott, you said. That was all in Yavapai County. That was in Prescott to where they where they were kind of keeping an eye on you guys because it was a motorcycle game. Right. Even though most motorcycle games I've ever heard heard of or been around, Mariah's dad's in one, they they're always just doing good shit That's, for the community. Yeah. But people like to portray it different. And especially probably people in Prescott, I mean, the the law enforcement in Prescott, they probably get bored. So they're wanting, to, they're looking for something to bust. Well, and what we found out about the law enforcement in Yavapai County, which is actually what saved my case, they were all in a motorcycle club. So the chief of Prescott Valley, the head of Prescott, uh, the head of Pant, and the chief of Prescott Police, they were all the top three brass in a motorcycle club called the Iron Brotherhood. So I don't know this stuff. I, I don't chase cops around and follow them, follow what they do. We were raising money for kids, for MS, for cancer, for heart awareness. I mean, that's what we do. That's what the history of four years of my club was about. When we get into court, I've been fighting my case for about six months. I'm, you know, I've been in Prescott 20 years. I know everybody there. Six days, or I'm sorry, 60 days to the day after my raid, I get a phone call from one of the bar owners on Whiskey Row in Prescott. He says, hey, Chris, aren't you fighting a life case over at the courthouse? And I go, yeah. He goes, I got video that you might want to come check out. I get down there. There's cops everywhere. I don't even want to be in this building. Uh, the guy who owns the bar pulls me upstairs in his apartment. And he goes, check this out. And sure enough, my prospect for my club was hanging out with his family. Doesn't have his colors on. We didn't require any of that stuff when you're not riding. We're not gangbangers. We just, you know, you be with your wife, be with your family. He noticed the top three brass of the police department come walking into the bar, and they all got colors on. Mm -hmm. My dude's like, hold up. This ain't Sun's Anarchy. Mm -hmm. You can't serve two masters. And he pokes the guy in the chest, and it just so happens it was the chief of Prescott Valley Police. As he pokes him and he's calling him out, they jumped him. They beat him up on mm -hmm. camera. So I've got, I now have the footage of the of them beating up my guy, I take it to court, my 127 years and 15 charges all of a sudden get dropped down to a two-year plea bargain. So that's, that's fucking insane. Because the the raid story where they raided you, they raided you clearly with the kids in the back and shit. Yeah. It was completely fucking crazy. Garbage. So they raided you, and then what did they find to where to where their the sentence was 127 <laughs> years? Yeah, they found two pounds of flour, a pound of hash, and a bunch of chocolate. And they all the charges were wrote up like narcotics. Like I had a meth lab, possession of narcotics, sales of narcotic. I had butter. <laughs> yeah. I had oil. So like when you go to jail for that kind of thing and you're sitting there talking with all the heads and the big dudes and you got to tell them I'm here for candy, uh, that's a hard to sound tough. It's hard to, like, yeah, I'm not here for anything bad. I'm here for candy bars. It's crazy they can call it narcotics. Yeah. Well, you know, it's that trick bag of... Prison for profits, you know, private prison, feeding the system. It's the way they learned how to fill bed spaces. You know, we have a law on the books in Arizona that states if our prisons aren't 96% full, then the taxpayer gets sued by the state. 
you guys, we guys, we cover that. So in order for them to avoid that, they have to keep it funneling people in. And it used to be with low-level offenders like myself, marijuana offenders, cannabis people who get pulled over and get a DUI, bam, you're in prison, automatic. Well, now they're realizing that some of those laws are going away because pot's becoming legal. What do they do now? It's 60% full of illegals now. They've learned how to keep those bed spaces full because honestly, the taxpayers aren't going to stand for us covering that debt. We'll lose our minds. So they just penciled in. In 2013, they were allowed to restructure as a real estate investment trust. So that's the big thing. So they make money. So they, so you had that, that the initial, well, the initial sentencings or whatever, they said 127 years. Yeah, my uh, plea, when they, they give you your arraignment and they arraign you on all your charges, I had 15 felonies. My wife had 11 felonies. They were trying to RICO them, which means make them federal, come at me because I was uh, in a gang. But there was no dirt on my club that we didn't do anything wrong. There was nothing mm-hmm. bad out there to make those kinds of charges stick, especially when I got the cops who raided me beating my guy up in a bar. That, it, so that kind of saved you. It saved my life. I mean, honestly, look, me being a white guy in a little town mm-hmm. and having that kind of situation is honestly what saved me. That, that Those are the only two things that saved me. Dude, that is fucking insane. So how long before did, did they... Because there was a little point in time to where it, it went to trial or whatever and it got down to two years. Yeah. How three, long did that take? Three and a half years. So three and a half years, you're sitting there waiting and be like, I'm waiting for the day I go to the pen forever. Every 30 days, we would drive from Phoenix to Prescott to go to court just for them to postpone it, give us a new date. I mean, we there was a lots, of, lots of wonky stuff with the court hearing. We filed a motion to suppress. We should have won it. They pulled some sneaky stuff. I mean, it was it was three and a half years of craziness. And I think once I got the right defense team on it that called them on all their bullshit, they couldn't do it anymore. And they realized that if we go to trial, we might lose, but I'm taking that county with me. And they don't want that. So here, take your two years, go do your, take a yeah. nap, write your book, and go home. Well, and at this point, too, because you have had literally almost no family growing up. Right. And now you got you got your two boys, your wife, you got this, this family. You're and loving. three so, girls. Yeah, so three and a half years... Three and a half years, you're sitting there like, fuck. <laughs> I can't imagine every single from. every single day when you wake up. Yes. Stressing about day. that. And then it gets down to where a plea deal means that you admit it and I'm going to take this deal, right? Yeah. means I have to admit it. They walked into the room. We didn't know the plea bargain was coming. I had about 100 people in court and court support. The judge walked in, and you could see the look on her face. She kind of was stunned that there were that many people there. And she goes, if you're all here for Mr. Martin, please stand up. And literally, you could hear the room. I looked over my shoulder, and I was fighting back tears because, honestly, sure. that's humbling. That's Fuck yeah. Not only am I about to, who knows what's about to happen, but I got all these people that are here to witness it, and they're there on purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they took the day to come watch this. So the state hands me the plea bargain. The plea bargain was for two years. I balled it up, and I threw it right back at the state. The My lawyers, this little... Uh, Columbo-style 87-year-old man. He's barred in four states mm-hmm. and just does... He pisses everyone off. He grabs me, shows me towards the door and yells, time out, judge. We need a time. Mm-hmm. He takes me outside and he goes, do you understand they just gave you the key to the kingdom? Take you two years, go home, finish it. I said, I didn't do anything wrong. Why do I have to go to prison at all? 127 to two? They could keep right on going. He said, son, you don't understand how this goes. Two years means they wave the white flag. That's them conceding, thrown in the towel. They don't want to fight you. They've admitted that you won, 
but you're gonna they're gonna get their ounce of blood out of you. So either you mm. take your two and you go home and you see your family, or I'll go in and defend you for that 127, and they'll give you 30, and then you'll call me every Christmas missing your wife and family, and I'm not gonna answer you because I warned you of what was gonna happen. So I uh. literally came back in from the hallway, looked at my wife with a tear, wink, said I love you, and then went to prison. Boom. Boom, two exactly. years. And then two, the prison you went to, was that in, where was that at? Arizona. Um, I was all state charges, so I didn't get transferred around from uh, state to state. I stayed in-house. My first yard was Yuma, Cibola, which is a medium security yard down on the border. Damn. So oddly enough, they they made your family not be able to visit you sure. for two years. Yes, sir. They claimed that my wife was my co-defendant and conspirator, my co-conspirator. Um, she's my wife. Yeah. <laughs> they made it sound like she attempted to squeal on me because they walked into the room where they were illegally questioning her without an attorney, and they showed my keys. And they said, are these your husband's keys? And she said, you know they're my husband's keys. You took them off my husband. Thank you. And he walked out. Well, they wrote it in the paperwork as she's snitching me off, trying to get me to turn on her, trying to get us to fight each other, trying to just get the whole thing to fall apart. The problem was, is we weren't doing anything wrong. Yeah. There's nothing to tell on each other about. There, I mean, you caught the boss. I'm the president. What else do you want? Um, so we really just, we kind of came together and realized that we're going to get something bad out of this. Something's going to go down. But we knew that it was because this story is bigger than us. It really has nothing to do with me and prison and mm -hmm. raid. This has to do with all the people that now we get to help and, uh, and you know, teach and show what this is about and hopefully help them avoid this kind of stuff. So two, two years you weren't able to see Lil Chris and Andrew and stuff? Two years they told me because she was a co-defendant. So and it didn't, they don't tell you that before you go to prison. You know, once you get to prison, which it takes about nine weeks for everything, all the, the transfer. And once you land on the yard, you got to send a letter home. Well, when I tried to get my phones approved, they wouldn't approve them because she was my co-defendant. So two years, no visits. Um, I, with 60 days left, they approved a visit finally with my son. And it was because I threatened with my attorney. And I said, you are affecting my right to associate with my family. And once they realized that I wasn't bullshitting, they let me see my kid. It was, mm. I almost didn't want to at that point because yeah. he had to leave. And I got, you know, the only saving grace was I got two months left and I'm going to be home. Yeah. But my wife sat in the parking lot waving the whole time. Mm -hmm. Like, wasn't a dry eye in the house because every dude in there knew my story. Mm -hmm. they, I'm on Channel 15 News every other month while we were in prison. So they knew what was going on. It, to me, the only thing you have in prison is hope. And that hope comes from your family. Dude. It really does. And without that family and without that hope, that's how people become bad people in prison. Or just or just end it. End it. Or yeah. just say fuck it. And and probably a big percentage of people probably would have fuck probably would have committed suicide after the first in a prison from what you went been through as a kid and not having any family and then going back in the yeah. pen. Like it's pretty impressive, like the resilience you've had and to be able to build OG's Anka Farms and Hempful Farms and you got two like great kids. Like, I don't know, it's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, it's been amazing. I think a lot of it came from people like Dave. You know, having people like Dave who took his volunteer time to show a kid that he didn't know anything about, that he loved him, and that he was special. And literally, that guy would get me into tryouts for football, tryouts for baseball. He's the reason I went to Yavapai. He's the guy who wrote the check to get me on the plane to come to my tryout. 
And I didn't know that until 26 years later, until we got back together to do the DACO. So the whole full circleness of this story is why we know it's bigger than us. Dave, my casa worker, came out and became the chef of my Zonka bars for a year and helped us relaunch because he was a chocolatier for 12 years Damn. after we met. Like, I can't make this stuff up. It, it was it was predetermined before I got here. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Well, there was, there was a couple years because uh, Mariah and her family, they had... They started to grow, and we had to grow them in Montana oh, in yeah. a deer lodge and stuff. And they were about to get raided. Oh. They were about to get raided. And then the the feds or whatever talked to the local sheriff, and he said, no, 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 don't. Kind of saved them. Yep. But what year was it where everyone was getting raided by the federal government? Oh, man. What, I can think of several years when they were getting raided. They're just trying to – what are they trying to do? Like, Well, to me, it's this. This is what I've figured out in my 46 short years on this planet – why would the government change anything? If they allow the states to medically and rec legalize a plant, they make the tax dollars off of that. Then if they keep it federally illegal, then they can still arrest you and make the money off probation and programming and prison. They're burning the wick at both ends. Why, why change a thing? Hmm. That's my stance on it. They know this plant's harmless. They, but you can't patent a plant. If you could patent a plant, we would have already gone through prohibition. It would have been over. It would be just like alcohol. They can patent alcohol because it's a process. You can't patent an oak tree. You can't patent a rose bush. But our government has learned because it's something that's in such high demand, keep it Schedule 1 illegal. People are still going to fight to get it. And we can bust them all. We can let the rich guys legalize it and make all the money on it, squishing out legacy brands like my own. Because mm -hmm. none of those suits were out there fighting the war when we were on the front lines putting our neck out there. Yeah. I can guarantee you that. So why would they change? That's kind of my thought process on it is it's money. It's all about the money. It's 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 something that's in higher demand than almost water. I mean, literally, people use cannabis for everything. Yeah. Absolutely everything. Yeah. If, but the government wants to say there's no medical value or no proof that it's... The, the most dangerous thing about pot is getting arrested for it. Let me tell you right now. That's yeah. the most dangerous thing. Yep. Is there a lot of people in this day still locked up? Oh, my gosh. That's kind of why I felt like when I didn't go to prison for life that this is my job. This is my, my, my reason for being on this planet. Because when I sat in jail, I was kind of popular, and I hate that to say that, but I had a lot of people writing me. I had a lot of people in support of my family. And when you sit next to a guy that's done 25 years for a plant and he doesn't get one letter— you feel real bad, unless you're just an asshole. Yeah. So I would literally hand them letters and go, man, read those for me. Read them to me. Read them to you. Anything. And mm -hmm. at that moment, I just I felt like there's something needed to be done. So I started a program called Coloring Books for, Coloring Books for Convicts. I would color. I would send this stuff home, and it was just counseling for me. It would keep me from punching somebody in the face. Mm -hmm. And my wife would post them on social media, and people would donate money to buy them. I didn't want $500 for something I didn't draw. I just colored. So I would take the money, buy coloring books, and I would hand them out to other inmates. I would take their work after they colored it and put it on Facebook. If it sold, that money went on their books. So and you could send it back to your wife. Absolutely. She could... She'd frame it. She'd take Damn. a picture of it. What a hustle. good idea. Hustle, right? That's yeah. what we learn on the streets is hustle. So now when I now that I'm home, I've kind of taken convicted – Creations, I've, which is my cooking show. It's a prison cooking show, and I've taken coloring books for convicts, and we've rolled it all over into a 501c3 nonprofit, zonkamiles.org. And that's where if you went to jail for pot, 
we're going to help you. We're going to help your family. If you've got kids, we're not going to leave your side. That's really what we're doing. I'm in the middle right now. I leave here. I go load up 162 bikes, and we drive all over Arizona the next two days and deliver them to group homes, just like I lived in. Um, that's what this story is about, is I got a second chance at life. I didn't get life, mm -hmm. so I shouldn't sit at home on Xbox and blow it off. Um, I've got a 5,000-square-foot kitchen it should feed people. Yeah. I, I just feel like we all have these resources. We all have these abilities. And sometimes we're so scared to share them because we're afraid of what people are going to take. Got to let that shit slide sometimes and worry about what you're doing when you give, not with what they're doing with it. Yeah. I I, I wonder just that mindset you got. You, I don't know. Were you born with it or just like <laughs> where did it come from? That's a good question, man, because I wasn't always a cool guy. I got voted into my presidency in the club for not being a nice guy. Mm -hmm. You don't make 1% president being a pussy. Yeah. Um, I just felt like uh, I went down the wrong path when I first started this life because of the circumstances, and I allowed myself to blame that. Mm -hmm. I'm an adult now. I can't do that anymore. And not to mention those boys you talk about. I also have three daughters. So I got five kids, two grandkids, and every one of those eyes are looking at me. Mm -hmm. I'm a hero to every one of them. Yeah. And that's huge. That's more pressure than prison, court, court cases. I mean, that's more pressure than anything. And to me, that means something. Mm -hmm. That's my legacy. That's something that they're going to talk about when I'm gone. And that's that's really more important to me, I guess. So a lot of that, the like compassion that you have with all this stuff is it came from your kids? I think so. And I think this whole experience has turned me into an empath. Mm -hmm. Before I was so cold from my experiences that I shut walls up. I, I closed down. I put walls up. I pushed people away. I'd fight before I'd flight. I'd fight before I'd friend. I, I, I was just not a nice person. And not to mention my wife of 22 years, who is my rock, who's carried everything for me. I feel like the whole general circumstance turned me into an empath. I walked into your gym. I felt the egoless love that came from every person in that gym. That's what reminded me of where I grew up. Foster homes, group homes. You find those five, six, ten core people that are your family, that weren't your family before, and you and you make a family out of it. I met Kyle. Mm -hmm. I, I felt Kyle here. I, his pain, his strength, his I, something's changed in me through this whole experience, and I just feel like it's empathy. I feel like I've gained empathy. I care what people think. I care what people feel, and I just want to help people. That's I, I know that's why I'm here now. Yeah, it's fucking... It's fucking so impressive, dude. It's so badass. And then it talks about in the documentary a little bit too about your high school coach and how, how just a little bit, it's it's crazy how much it happened to me too in high school. Like how much just a few words from a coach or a few lessons can impact your entire life. I gotta tell you, man. I was a freak athlete. Um, I looked like I couldn't play ball. I was a goofy, scrawny little kid. But you put a football or baseball in my hand, seventy yards, ninety-one miles an hour. Fucking Ooh, launch, launch fucking new. That's how I walked on the Avapai. That's how I came out here and just played with not knowing anyone. It, it really, the, the sports side of things is what kind of kept my head out of it. I won a championship. We went undefeated my freshman year in football. We got moved to varsity. We were rocking. Well, I'm in foster homes. So within six months, I moved to another high school. Then another high school. Then another high school. Well, when by my senior year, I got I'd been through eight high schools. We landed, my last high school was my rival high school to my freshman high school when we went undefeated. So these dudes have kicked this school's ass for a long time. And I was on the giving end of that when I played there. I come to this school and my coach looks right at me and says, you're not going to start here. 
And I'm like, dude, I've played every high school in this town. I've earned it. Mm-hmm. And he said, we have a 6'4", 230, 4'5", running quarterback that jumps like a deer. I'm sorry, you're not going to start. You're going to play corner. And I was bummed. But he would still, Dave would come pick me up, take me to coach's house. We'd run the gauntlet. He'd, he worked me out as number two. So I took it serious. Third game of the year, our quarterback went down with a separated shoulder, and I came in. I threw four touchdowns. I ran two, 389 yards in the air. It's in my book, the picture, all the fun stuff, all the neat stuff. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know about it was my coach had been sick with colon cancer the whole time. So right before I went into my game at the new school, coach was not on the field. I was so wrapped up in me and mom and all this, you know, my personal life that I didn't even realize that coach wasn't there. Halfway through the game, I'm looking at my guy like, hey, offensive coordinator, where's coach? Oh, he's home. He's sick. We'll, we'll see him afterwards. We got done with the game. Nobody mentions anything about coach. Saturday, nothing. We get no word by Sunday coach had passed away. So now I'm tripping. Now I'm like, man, I ain't going to say bye. I'm in a group home. They won't let me go see him. I can't say goodbye to anything. Three months goes by. I go to my mom's. I'm sitting with my mom. And me and my mom weren't close. I lived in foster homes. But I wanted her to know that my coach had passed away. It was important to me. I was telling her about it on my home pass, and she starts bawling. And I'm going, that's weird. My mom's never even told me happy birthday. Why are you bawling about my football coach? She comes walking out. And on the game I threw four touchdowns, it was the only game she had ever showed up to. Coach had sent her a card with a flower and told her, if you do anything in your life, it should be seeing your boy throw a ball. And that's why she was there. So not only was he a good guy helping me just be a man and grow up, but that guy was making sure my family life was right, even when I didn't think he knew or gave a shit. Mm -hmm. So when we did the documentary, we went back and filmed it. I walked to the funeral home where he was buried. No clue where he was. The guy working behind the desk, I walked in, and I'm, I'm here to see my coach. I got a camera crew with me. We're going to film it. I want to see where he was buried. I never got to say goodbye. And he goes, which coach you talking about? And it was like the 6'5 lineman, black guy. Mm-hmm. And he go, and I told him, Coach Kaywood. And he goes, Highland Park? And I go, yep. And he goes, I played in there two years after I left. I was like, no, or two, I'm sorry, two years before I was there. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I played under Kaywood. He goes, I know exactly where he is. And he walked me to the guy's headstone. So we got it all in film. It's all in the documentary. And I actually, I got to say goodbye to the guy. You know, it was yeah. 26 later, years later. It was kind of a pain in the butt, but it was so important to me. It was, he was just that guy. He was that father figure that, you know, I think every boy needs in their life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a coach uh, named Robert Fallis. He was oh. just like one of the best coaches in the world, he brought Randy Couture to the heavyweight title. Yeah. He uh, brought Misha Tate to the heavyweight title, and he just—he was a head coach at Extreme Couture, head coach <sighs> at Team Quest when all the, when it was a, a, a big growing program, and I got to live with him for a little while, and he—he wow. he taught me just so many fucking lessons. He was raised as Jehovah's Witness, and so was I, and he—he he taught me to always just do research for myself. Don't learn from like. Don't take people's word for it. You got to go in and research for yourself and figure your own opinion out on things. It, it was crazy because he was such a powerful person and he seemed like he had the answer to everything and he helped me in so many fucking ways. And then I about, I think about three years ago now, he committed suicide. Wow. Yeah. Crazy fucking deal. That just shows you, you never know another person's struggle. It's it's you just know, crazy just too because he know. yeah he was the one that had the answer to everyone. Anytime you'd come with him with anything, he'd give you just a good, like educated answer. Like one of the smartest people I've ever met, and, and uh, yeah, it's just crazy how much those a uh, coach 
can have an impact on your entire life. Absolutely. The, the coach will never leave my side. They did a video with Coach K. Wood um, after he passed, and it was to the song um, The Dance, Garth Brooks, uh-huh. the old country song. And there's a part in the video where I'm running off the field after I threw uh, a, a ball in one of our practices, and they were filming the practice just so we could watch it. And he, I did something wrong, <laughs> completely wrong. And he picked me up by my face mask and was yelling at me. Mm-hmm. Through the, and my, you can see my feet in the video, literally just dangling mm-hmm. there. And at the time, I remember being how afraid. But from now, you know, that point on, I remember that moment shaping me, that moment grabbing me by the fucking neck and telling me, like, look, grow up, pull your shit together. Yeah. Life's bigger than you got to go home to your group home after school. There's more to life than that. And that's really what I took from that. That's what he taught me. It's crazy, too, that that people, like, with your kind of upbringing, um, those type of people are obviously super resilient. But then you've started this company and you've got this hustle underneath you. But then... It, how do you raise your kids? How do you raise your kids to have that same hustle, that same grind without having to go through those, those same challenges? You know, that, I, I face that's that. tough. I face that challenge all the time because I want to protect them from everything. I don't want them to see any of it. But then you raise this protected, guarded little baby, and I want them to understand. So the way I do it is I get them involved with the nonprofit. You know, we used to do Thanksgiving every year, and it was awesome. Fried turkey, baked turkey, sit around, eat too much, watch football. No one would help the wife clean and everyone would leave. You know, every year, the same thing. And when I got out of prison, I literally, after sitting with that many men that had no family or, you know, been there that long, I realized, like, we need to take advantage while we're here, while we're on the planet, while we're sitting here. We need to make a change now. We can't talk about it. You got to do it. So I told the kids, I'm going to go open up my 5,000-square-foot kitchen. I'm going to go buy 250 pounds of turkey, and we're going to feed every person we can that's hungry. And they thought I was nuts. And now we're on our third year, and my kids have never hugged me more. They walk up to me after the event and go, Dad, thanks for having me here. That was the most amazing thing when we took 200 box lunches to kids who didn't even know what turkey was, and they came out smiling. They, my boys, like, they just, they, we just delivered toys to kids that are uh, Native American. The whole group home was Native American. They, you could obviously tell that a lot were related, um, probably five brothers and sisters here, four brothers and sisters here. They didn't even want the presents. We were dressed up like Santa and the Grinch, and all they wanted to do was play with Santa and the Grinch. Like that melted my boys' hearts faster than any present I've ever bought them. And literally, they showed it. They came to me just like, Dad, thank you. Can I come back? Can I bring my friends? And to me, that's the end all be all. That's that's why I do this. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Well, yeah, your boys come into the jiu-jitsu gym too, and they got a fucking good work ethic. <laughs> they're they're both studs. Like. It's pretty sweet. And that's awesome because they were very soft-spoken kids. Like Andrew, my oldest boy, is very mellow, very even keel. And Christopher's always been the very loud, rambunctious, over-the-top, but little guy. Like he's yeah. the little guy syndrome. And we've done football, baseball, soccer. I mean, I put these. I bought the kid a $2,500 dirt bike because I thought maybe it'll be his thing mm-hmm. until he knocked himself out on the second ride. <laughs> and I'm literally like, what am I going to do with this boy? Um, he, he's always watched. We've watched fighting because I'm a UFC junkie since one since the old Tank Abbott and Dan Severn days and, you know, Don Fry locally, Sierra Vista Boy. Uh, I, I, I've always been a junkie, just not one in the cage. I, mm-hmm. I love watching it. And my boys, they've watched with me. He'd always make a comment. The little guy would always make a comment like, hey, I, I, I could tie that guy up. I could roll him around. And I'm <laughs> like, I bet you could. And that's when we started talking to Brad. Um, I actually met Brad from your gym in prison. 
on the way. Brad and I were in Winslow. Sorry, Brad, didn't mean to put you on blast. Don't 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 hate no, me. No, no, we were gonna. I was talking to Brad about that too. We, we were gonna talk about it. Yeah. We met in Winslow because he coached the base a softball team, and I went to college for that. So he's he was very serious about it and would hold tryouts in prison, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, like yeah. Tryouts in prison. If you can't throw a ball. That's probably why you're here. <laughs> and I got on third, and I threw two people out, hot shots from third base, and that and Brad walked right up and was like. Dude, you want to play? Yeah. <laughs> and from that point on, we were really close. Um, I hadn't seen him since I'd gotten out until the gym. We were speaking on Facebook. And oh. to see him on Facebook outside of prison, he had just grown. He had gotten better, healthier. Life was going good for him, and I felt comfortable. So we we chatted, and he was telling me he was working out with you guys. And I'm like, man, my boys would love to try it. And he suggested we come in, and that's literally how we found. Oh, our dude, that's Brad. fucking awesome. Yep, an old prison friend. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> crazy. That's super cool. Full circle. It just shows you how the world is really small in essence. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so the OG Zonka Bars and the Hempful Farms. Hempful Farms. Uh, the the headquarters is 19th Ave and Bell, right? Uh, for Hempful Farms, yes. We're at 19th Avenue and Bell. We have a retail store there. We have a 5,000-square-foot manufacturing facility and kitchen. And then Zonka, we make out of Tucson. We have a kitchen down in Tucson that we produce our chocolate bars out of. Okay, sweet. You have to have a separate license, so we're under a cannabis license out of Tucson. So you, will you have a link in the description where people can, like, donate to the nonprofit and all the kids and shit? Yeah, we do. Uh, ZonkaMiles.org is our website. That'll give you... The list of lifers in prison that'll show you how to write a letter to an inmate that will give you a link to our PayPal, which is uh, paypal.com backslash Zonka Miles. Oh, sweet. So you build, so you can get on there and write a letter to the inmate that's locked up we for do. cannabis. Uh, part of being part of my nonprofit or my business, I am a bully in that aspect. If you work for me, whether it's California, whether it's our New Mexico store, our Oklahoma store, I will force you to write an inmate. <laughs> um, I just feel like it's it's kind of sacrilegious if you work for a guy that runs a nonprofit, yet you don't know anything about what he does and how they do it. Um, I, I've ran kitchens for 25 years. I trained my dishwashers how to cook. That way, if my cook doesn't come in, he can fill in. Yep. You know, the weakest link thing. Uh, we do the same thing in the company. I want everyone to know these people that are doing time for prison because they should be home. Or time for pot, they should be home. How did you become, because there's so many qualities that come with being a leader. Like, how did you learn these, like, leadership qualities and when, how to run things? When you're on your own on the streets growing up as a kid, it's, you got two options. You're going to make it or you're not. I mean, I feel like being forced to, to take care of myself from a young age, you learn how to be self-sufficient really quickly. And you never got involved in, uh, like, heavy drugs, heroin and stuff that really spiraled you down. My mom was a junkie. My dad was an alcoholic. My parents were physically, they broke my teeth. They broke my nose. They burned me with irons. They, they stabbed me with pencils and forks, and they were not cool people. So it made my decision on drugs super simple. Like, Fuck do that. I want to be like these guys? Fuck them. Uh, yeah, I wanted, honestly, my goal for the first 15 years was to do so much better than all of them. Just to show them up. Like, really, I wanted to be like, look, you couldn't hurt me. You couldn't ruin me no matter what. And I realized that wasn't the way to go about it either. To, to me, it's, it's really about here. Like, how mm -hmm. do you feel here? Yeah, I was 1% motorcycle club. That was fun being the president. That was cool. And But did it fulfill me here? Yeah. No, that's not a, at all. That's what surprised me. So where does it come from? Because your parents probably had a shitty upbringing, right? Yeah. I'd and imagine. their parents maybe probably had a shitty yeah. upbringing. And it just filters, filters, filters. But then you get someone like you who wants to just turn it around. It's pretty fucking cool. 
you know, I, I give the accreditation to the wife and kids. I have uh, the best wife in the world. She was my best friend in college. We met 22 years ago, and uh, 26 years ago, actually. And we've been together 22. When I went to prison, she ran it. She held it down. She's a great stepmom to my girls. I mean, I couldn't do this without her. I couldn't do any of it. I think she and her family have taught me a lot. Her parents were married 42 years before they passed. Um, they were very serious about family. And it took me the first 10 years of her and I being together to learn that mm. and get that. So I think some qualities are probably built in just because I knew what I wanted in life. I knew what I saw. I knew what I, all my friends had. And now I have my own. I got yeah. you know, my own kids that look up to me. And There's, there was an interesting part in the uh, documentary about when you, because in the Crohn's, when you had the Crohn's in prison, what were they giving you? <laughs> Uh, well, at first, they didn't give me anything. Uh, I went into congestive heart failure. My ankles got the size of grapefruit. You only had one option is to eat what they're giving That's you. That's it. And that just no diet. your gut. Well, and that was part of my plea bargain was because of my medical issues, they sent me to the Cibola unit, which is supposed to be a medical yard. But let me inform you, there's no such thing in prison. They tag them that so you can get more money sent to the prison as a medical yard, but there's no difference in treatment. There's Damn. no specialty doctors, none of that. You're still sitting in a cage, handcuffed to the dude next to you, waiting for some... MP to come and tell you what's going on. Um, they gave me balasalicide, which is a, at the time, was a experimental drug, nine capsules a day. Um, and they were garbage. My hair started was, to fall out. Oh. I started to shave and rash and break out with sores and cankers. And it was it was horrible. Um, my wife, again, was the leader on the street. She, she would have circled the wagons and get everyone on the phone, calling corporate DOC, letting them know, like, you can't treat people this way. Prison or no prison. Um, you know, she, she was the warrior on the on the other side. And all I could do really was start eating better the best I could in prison. So we quit going to the chow hall. Um, we would have people snag stuff out of the kitchen, you know, like veggies and onions and carrots and things that we could cook. And then I would write recipes and pass them out to the guys, showing them, like, hey, man, we got this extra food out of the kitchen. And if you take the stuff off the commissary list, you can make this. Well, now that's turned into a cookbook called Convicted Creations, and I'm on season three on YouTube doing a cooking show where we bring that when the inmates come home, we get on the set, we make some funky food like a Dorito tamale that we did in prison, and we talk about their story. We, we, we get their story some attention. We counsel our way through our stupid situation for about 12 minutes, and we laugh it off, and we show the world that, hey, look, we made it, and we're okay, and we're normal people just like you guys. And uh, we just got picked up on Social Club TV and Connected TV to air that. So uh, That's a good idea, yeah, dude. You know, it's just, I'm a marketing guy. I'm a merchandiser. I try to get my name on everything, but I also try to make sure we're helping people along the way. Mm -hmm. And now, man, black, white, Mexican, Indian, doesn't matter. The, the racing doesn't mean anything like prison. We bring you out. We get on the set, and we laugh, and we joke, and we hug, and we fellowship. We, we walk through a bad situation, and we make light of it, really. It, it, and now we get 20,000 views on, on certain posts. It's just, I'm blown away. I, I wanted nothing more than to get out of prison and forget it all. And there's so many people researching it, trying to learn about it. We just felt like what a great opportunity to not only talk about what we do, but it's a survival guide. Really, you go through mm. the cookbook and it teaches you stories and shows you these guys' walks and, and you know, might help you a little bit along the way. Dude, it's fucking awesome. Fucking Appreciate so that. awesome, dude. Yeah. I stay busy. Keeps me out of prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For real, for real. <laughs> what, uh, how much time are we at, Jay? 48. 
146. Oh, that's perfect. Oh, nice. Right there. Dude, thanks so much for coming on. No, thank so, you. So glad I fucking met you. Nice to meet you, too. I appreciate you. And honestly, I got to tell you, the changes that you've made uh, in my boys is unchangeable. Like, uh, my little man wasn't always the most respectful guy, even though I, I'm kind of hard on him. Um, he wouldn't do it around me. He yeah. would do it with mom. And now I, I love it because I can go, hey, what if I gave Tim a call? That dude's like, sorry, mom, you want me to get the trash? <laughs> and and I don't do that as a scare tactic at yeah, all. Yeah. I just, I let him know that, look, there's other people watching. There's there's other people that count on you as a man and a, a person in this house. So it's it's just helped. It, he loves it. He literally, the guy walks around talking about YouTube videos he's seen all day and different moves. And I just, to see the passion grow in a kid's eyes is, that's why I do the nonprofit. So to see it in my own, I just like to say thanks. I Dude, really fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, he's definitely a natural too. He's gonna be a stud. Both both those boys are scrappy as fuck. That's cool. Thanks. But uh, yeah, they've been through it too. You know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. OG's Uncle Bars and uh, Hempful Farms, and all the link will be in the bio, and then we'll put the documentary link in the cool. bio too. And and for the nonprofit, can we do that, Jay? Too. Yeah, just send me the links, and I'll got it. Yeah. No fuck problem. yeah. Okay, sounds good, guys. Thanks for watching. See you next week. Peace.